0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Anthony, who is using Django and Python to build a platform that lets you buy gift cards for eco friendly products. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you actually want to pronounce your real name, which I couldn't even get close to pronouncing correctly?
1: (laughs) Sure. So my real name in French is Antonin Greli, and you can just call me Anthony because that's easier.
0: Yeah, a lot easier. (laughs) That's for sure. For me, at least. Uh, So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform?
1: Sure. So... um... I'm someone who studied uh, business originally, and I found coding to be super helpful in uh, creating companies and launching new services. And uh, after um, creating my own um, business for uh, gift cards for restaurants, um, I met a guy who wanted to create a a gift card business for eco-friendly products. Um, And well, there was no option in France at the time to do this. And so he was looking for a good technical solution that would enable um, the gift cards to be used in any digital or physical shop um, and to handle all of the money and to make sure that none of it was ever missing and so since I'd already worked on a similar kind of platform I thought it was a nice opportunity and well I'd been looking for um, projects that make more sense to me so projects that have an impact environmental impact or social impact and so this was a I thought a really nice um, project to work on. Um, So I've been working on it for nearly a year now and we launched it uh, in production in uh, last September.
0: Nice. So that would be, well, you say last September, would that be September 2018 or 19? Uh, 2019, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And then you developed it for a year ongoing before that.
1: Um, We started working on it. uh, We started talking about it in March and I think we launched it um, I started developing in June so it was only a few a few months to build the, the main platform and we've been um, improving it a lot <laughs> since uh, since we originally launched.
0: Well that's a very fast turnaround time from June to you know shooting an MVP out maybe in September
1: Well I think that's one of the roles um, that we kind of forget as uh, developers. Um, I take this very much at heart the the role of a CTO which uh, in my mind a lot of um, of my role is to help uh, the business user to reduce his requirements and to make sure that we launch with nothing extra than exactly what we need Um, and that can be a bit of a struggle to uh, to challenge everything that your business user wants and to make sure that um, everything that you're putting on the requirement sheet is really required so that when you launch you launch as soon as possible And you get your first users and you get feedback and you improve and i think it's always really um interesting as soon as you launch how your priorities instantly change because you have user feedback and the things you plan to work on you actually put them off and you start working on other things that you you've gotten feedback on um so to me it's a winning strategy and i think we 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 got a lot of great feedback from doing this uh, as fast as possible and you know still Still, very seriously, it was still a working platform and just it had no extra uh, features than exactly what we needed.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely a really, really very smart way to go about it, right? It's almost like you end up just sort of developing the platform. I don't want to say out in the open, but you sort of kind of are like, you know, you're not just sitting there waiting behind closed doors until perfection. You just get it up.
1: Exactly. And I think um, when someone has a business idea, they tend to think that in order to validate it, they need to bring it as far as possible, they, they need to make a, a product that that's really nice and finished, um, and see if the entire product works. But the truth is, testing out a product um, means testing out how it works when it's at when it's as bare as possible. So if you're launching a product that only does one thing, but does it well and that works and you've really validated something. Whereas if you launch something that does a ton of different things, you you don't even know what you validated. So focusing on the core feature that really is going to make your business, I think is a smart business move as well as a smart technical move.
0: Right. So you mentioned we there before, were you just the solo developer on this project or is there more than one developer working on this?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm a, a solo developer on, the, on this project. And to be honest, I've always worked uh, solo, uh, not necessarily out of choice, but because most of the projects that I've worked on were single man endeavors.
0: Okay, so you mentioned earlier, well, not earlier, but before you hopped on the podcast that this site is built with Django and Python. Uh, what was your motivation for choosing that? And did you look at other frameworks and languages beforehand?
1: Originally, I chose to work with um, with Python and Django because I really like the philosophy behind it of um, a framework that's, uh, got, that's really opinionated, that uh, essentially tells you how you should be doing things, uh, what the best practices are. It's not shy on telling you how it thinks you should do things. And since I'm not um, a trained um, programmer, I'm not a trained CS grad, um, I think that's very helpful to me because I don't want to be making any of the choices that have like uh, good options already set out. So this is what got me into Django. And the, the reason I really like Python as well is that it's meant for its philosophy is to be very readable. And um, because I, I know that at any point I might leave the project and have somebody else take over, you know, if something happens to me as a solo dev, I want my code to be as readable as possible, to be as understandable as possible. Um, And that's a lot of the philosophy behind Python. So that's the the reason for Python. And the reason for Django is, you know it's called uh, the framework for perfectionists with deadlines. And I think that fits me uh, quite well. I wanted to release something fast, but well, uh, the speed of development, once you're a little experienced with Django, I think is quite breathtaking. You can build complex things that do a lot of work in very little time. And so for startups, I think it's a it's a very good choice.
0: Nice. Yeah, you brought up a whole bunch of great points there. Like, you know, with Python, you know, you're the only developer right now, but well, maybe down the line, someone else may, you know, come in, possibly do a little bit of coding here or there, or even take over the project. and. Yeah, I find Python to be amazing in that regard. It's very hard to write super insanely complicated code like that you typically wouldn't use all the time in other languages where you can definitely shoot yourself in the foot and it's, you know, that's the type of code you get into where it's like two months later and you have no idea what you just wrote. Absolutely.
1: As soon as you write something convoluted in Python, I feel like you can see it right away. Uh, You don't need somebody to tell you that your code is convoluted. It just shows in the editor because you've got too much nesting. As a a programmer with no formal training um, and with nobody else to read my code, I find that uh, to be a good safeguard.
0: Yeah. So when it comes to using Django or using any of the built-in batteries included, such as like the admin or the auth app,
1: yeah, heavily. The, uh, the admin is super useful. Um, we use it a lot for all of the gift card management. So, when, so we have customers who purchased our gift cards directly from the website. Um, and that will be usually up to 10 cards, like small businesses will do this, or individuals who want to buy one or a few gift cards for their families. Uh, but most of our business users, um, they're going to buy like 200 or 500 gift cards for their company. Um, and these are generated uh, through with the admin. So right from the start, I built the admin around um, flexibility so that our um, users, our um, customer su- support um, users could easily create batches of gift cards with various amounts, with various expiry dates. Um, to be able to you know attach a, a, a digital gift card to a physical um, Card because we produce like physical gift cards as well. So you have to at some point tie the, the money to the actual physical object. Um, and all these complexities are really easy to manage with uh, the Django admin. So it's a it's a super powerful way of exposing a very powerful admin interface. And um, our customer support uses it every day right now. And I know they're quite happy with it. And my main frustration is that they tend never to tell me when uh, something isn't doing exactly what they expect and so it's actually kind of hard to get user feedback from your admin interface so you can improve it. So I have to sit behind their desks uh, and look at how they're working in order to find ways that I can improve their workflow. But um, definitely the the admin is a big part. And apart from the admin, I'm also using um, the Django template language. Um, since um, we have a, a business site that explains how we work with a blog and with quite a bit of SEO that's uh, baked into the blog uh, because that, that brings us a lot of customers. And we did not need like a fancy SPA for this uh, use case. Um, we're also using um, Django REST framework because we have an API for uh, digital shops to interface with our gift card so that they can um, consume a gift card. If somebody wants to use a gift card in a digital shop, uh, they, they can use a plugin, a Shopify, or a uh, WooCommerce plugin, um, and that will connect to our API and uh, uh, take money out of the gift card. These are, I think, the main uh, batteries included. Uh, I mean, REST framework isn't technically batteries included, but uh, almost as if.
0: Right, yeah. That library is one of those libraries where, yeah, it's not baked into the framework itself, but so many people use it, and it's like pretty much the the de facto REST API framework to use, right?
1: Absolutely, and it's... um, it's really handy because I have the the same models that are exposed via API, via admin, um, and you can purchase gift cards directly on the site as well. And everything works super smoothly. So I'm, I'm quite happy about that.
0: Okay. Let's rewind a bit though and talk a little bit about that admin. So, you know, it kind of sounds like just your staff is using the admin, not the end customer, but what would the workflow look like for an end customer to go and buy a gift card? Do they need manual intervention to happen from your staff to enable it or is there like an automated process where it just gets like mailed out like instantly or you know if it's not physical it gets emailed to them
1: right so it's um we have a a marketing site which has a um basically a shop a checkout page Uh, so we we only have one product which is the gift card so uh, it didn't it wouldn't have made much sense to use something like woocommerce or, or shopify so Uh, I basically just built a checkout page um, that's connected to Stripe. So we use Stripe for for payment management. Um, And the the checkout page is actually fairly complex because um, you can buy one card, you can buy 50, uh, you can buy digital cards, you can buy physical cards, and you can buy physical cards and have them shipped in a, a little envelope that you can um berry in the grass and that will sprout uh, new plants (laughs) things like that so you can ask for an invoice or you can uh, not want an invoice Uh, many different options so i I build this in view it's the the only uh, javascript heavy page of the website and once an order is made for a gift card most of the logic after that is actually handled um, with tools like uh, stripe and zapier Uh, as much as i can i use no code tools uh, because I find them super flexible and sometimes they can save you a lot of time as a developer so that you focus only on the things that are really complex rather than uh, things like a payment management, which can be done super easily with uh, Stripe and automation that can be done super easily with Zapier. Um, and so they receive instantly uh, an email after their purchase and the the gift card is generated by a few scripts that uh, are run on my Django site.
0: Okay, so in that case, one of your staff members, they don't really need to mess around with the admin to like enable that card. It's just completely a hands-free experience once the order is placed?
1: Absolutely. Um, everything is automated. And I think that's one of the reasons why this kind of business can work now. Um, because um, gift cards are a very low-margin business, right? You don't make uh, a lot of money per per cell. You you, you take a small cut of every cell. Um, so because of that, you need high volumes and... If we tried to do um, gift cards 20 years ago, 30 years ago, without the ability to automate everything, it would have been significantly more difficult to um, make money and to be a viable company. Um, actually, I say company, but we are a nonprofit company, uh, which I'm not sure exists in the United States. So any money that we make, we have to reinvest into the business or give out to our um, cooperative of, uh, of businesses that are all ethical and that are co-owners of this, um, non-profit company.
0: Nice. Yeah. We have those over here in the U S as well. It seems like you went all out though with the, uh, eco-friendliness. Like you can literally take the envelope and just put it into the ground and X number of months later in the right season, a plant is going to sprout up.
1: Absolutely. Uh, that's actually a challenge. We don't exactly know what seeds we have. Um, so we don't know when you're supposed to put them in the ground and sometimes you get tomatoes and sometimes you get daisies. So yeah, we haven't solved that part yet.
0: Very cool. Now you mentioned this is kind of like a low-margin business, so you kind of have to operate at scale. Uh, what type of scale are you operating at now? Like, how many gift cards do you go like process per month, or maybe how many visitors do you get? You know, whatever makes sense for you. Um,
1: yeah. So with the as soon as COVID uh, began and in, in, uh, in France when we started getting uh, locked down, um, sales stopped completely. Uh, actually, let me rewind a little bit. Um, it's a very seasonal business, right? Uh, Gift cards are usually given out at Christmas. It's um, most of the business of the year that we're going to be making is going to be made at this point, whether it's from um, end users like consumers who just want to buy a gift card for one or a few people, or businesses that uh, will give out um, a 50 euro gift card to every one of their employees. And so that can be Uh, a thousand gift cards of uh, 50 euro Uh, all of this is usually done around christmas so very very seasonal activity um the rest of the year we have um smaller activities you know for uh, birthdays or for people living their leaving their companies and who are being gifted a gift card things like that so i'd say the the scale is probably around um maybe 50 to 100 gift card per week in uh Uh, Out of season, and then during season, it can it can go up to ten times that. Yeah, something like that.
0: Wow. Yeah that that that's a good amount of transactions happening on a pretty regular basis.
1: Yes, and all running on SQLite, which I'm told that I'm crazy about.
0: We'll get to that soon enough. But for now, let's uh, rewind a little bit and talk more about how your application might be architected. So, is it like one monolithic app, or do you have it broken up into microservices? or somewhere in between maybe, and you're just using a whole bunch of Django apps in like a monolithic app?
1: So a lot of it is the monolithic Django app. But as I mentioned, it's connected to quite a few services that handle uh, some of the automation. So Zapier, we use a lot of Airtable in order to follow the transactions and trigger a few automations.
0: Hold on. Hate to interrupt you, but can you give us the TLDR on Zapier and Airtable? Like what do those services do or allow you to do?
1: Um, so, Zapier is a tool that allows you to um, receive events and trigger actions. So, an event that you can receive is, for example, you can plug it into Stripe. And so, as soon as um, a payment occurs in Stripe, you, re- you can do something. And so, doing something can be, for example, uh, send a message to my Django server so that it generates the gift card. Or it can be um, send an email to the customer to confirm that their payment has been done. Um, things like that. So Zapier is really useful to uh, bring to, um, connect uh, various tools together. It's got uh, hundreds and hundreds of integrations that you can use. And so for quick automations, it's really practical. So I use that quite a bit. As for Airtable, it's uh, basically Google spreadsheets on steroids. Um, you can use it to organize any sort of data. Uh, so imagine a spreadsheet where you can uh, have pictures where you can have um, data that's connected from one sheet to another a bit like in a relational database um, where you can store you know things like URLs or lists um, where you can categorize things. So it, I find it really useful when you need to give an easy interface to your business users um, so that you know it's a lot more flexible than the Django admin, which is all hard-coded. So depending on the use case, I will use either Airtable or um, the Django admin um, to let my users have the, you know, the best experience possible.
0: Interesting. So what made you go with Zapier? Because it almost sounds like you could sort of kind of replace that, maybe just like listening for webhooks from Stripe maybe, or is there more to it?
1: Um, Well, for example, um, you know, let me... um, Uh, If I can take a sec, I can just open up my Zapier and tell you all the zaps that are running. So it might give you a better idea of what's actually happening. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, Okay. So for example, um, right now, uh, the payment system works through Zapier. So uh, um, Zapier sends, uh, um, I mean, Stripe sends a notification to Zapier when a payment is made. And um, this sends back a notification to Django to produce the cards to Mailjet, to send an email out to the user, to Discord, so I can notify um, the our company is running on Discord instead of Slack, but um, so we, I can notify the company that a sale has been made. Um, I also use Zapier for invoice, uh, for sending invoice to business users. So um, when a transaction uh, occurs, um, the, the transaction is always sent to Airtable and so Zapier will look at Airtable and if a, an invoice is required it's going to connect to QuickBooks and ask QuickBooks to send um, a, a, an invoice to, um, to the customer. Another example is that uh, for example when a, um, a customer uh, checks that they want the newsletter received Um, that's also in the Airtable data. And so Zapier will look at that and it will send a notification to MailChimp to add the user to our newsletter. Um, You know, a lot of little things like this that I could code, I could use, you know, the MailChimp API, I could use the MailJet API, I could use the Stripe API, but uh, it's usually a lot faster um, as you're building to use Zapier and it's also super flexible. So when you're really set in stone into exactly what your process is, it's fine to code everything, but when you're building a company and things are moving quite a, a lot, uh, I find it really useful to use these automation tools and, until you're really sure of exactly what your process is and you want to hard code it. Um, and sometimes that's never, sometimes you just wanna keep it uh, flexible and in Zapier uh, rather than, than putting it into your hard code.
0: Right, very cool. Yeah, sounds like you're saving a lot of time not having to wire up you know, six or seven different APIs.
1: Yeah, exactly. And being dependent on uh, their uh, APIs changing sometimes or, you know, their API keys being reset or things like that, that. Just a lot of hassle that you don't have to think about.
0: Right. I guess this is one of those cases where you're probably trading maybe time for money because Zapier, I would imagine, is some amount per month, right, for this setup?
1: Absolutely. But it's um, we have a nonprofit plant. It's a little cheaper, Um I think we're paying something like a 60 or 70 bucks um, um, a month, which is, you know, compared to how much developer costs uh, and compared to the amount of time that it saves, I think it's a, it's a very easy trade-off.
0: Yeah, that's a no-brainer, right? It's like six, 60, 70 a month. That's like, you know, 800 a year, let's say. You know, that's a couple hours of dev, of dev time. Like no dev is going to get all of those integrations up manually in, in that amount of time. And that's just like, you know, one year's worth of time.
1: Exactly, and it can be. It also can be edited by my business users. So if they want to change uh, an email or something like that, they can go into Zapier and they can modify the um, the way that it's set out, and they can understand how the the system works. So it's it makes it flexible not just for me, but for anybody who wants to interact with it. So of course you have to be careful so that nothing breaks. But um, I find it very helpful. Um, there is a limit though. Um, for example, for our uh, Stripe uh, events and the, the payments, uh, I'm actually on the, in the process of bringing it back um, bringing it back directly into Django so that we receive the webhook from uh, Stripe right away, because there is a delay in Zapier based on what plan you have. And so the delay is, uh, is two minutes that, based on our plan. And that's a little annoying for the user experience. They receive the email confirming that they've made a purchase two minutes later. Um, and so in this case, we chose to bring everything back into Django because now we have time and we know exactly how it works. So it just makes sense. But uh, yeah, as you're building, I think uh, the developers shouldn't be afraid of using a lot of no-code tools to go faster. Just because you can code doesn't mean you should or have to every time.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then for Airtable, I mean, if you're if someone were to sign up and buy something like, I don't know, 500 digital gift cards, do you just send them... Like a CSV file that's formatted nicely with all of the the codes, or do you use Airtable and send them a link somewhere? Like, how does that work?
1: That's a great question. Uh, we we had a good think about how to how to do this properly. As soon as you buy more than a few gift cards on our site, um, we send you a CSV file instead of um, of the actual PDFs of the of the cards, because um, if you send too many PDFs, you crash people's uh, inboxes but a lot of people are kind of confused on how to use the CSV. So for any client that orders more than say 10 gift cards, we offer them the ability to send them out to their end users ourselves. So they can just send us their uh, mailing list and uh, who gets what gift card and what amount. And then we can plug that into Mailjet jet and, and send out the gift cards. But otherwise, yeah, we just send out a CSV with links to the PDFs so that, um, uh, the business um, customer can send out individual links to uh, to their employees, for example, if it's uh, for employees.
0: Very cool. So yeah, your app sounds like you're just tying together a whole bunch of APIs with, of course, like a lot of business logic. I, I would imagine like your core, like MVP status thing is just basically using Stripe to manage all of those gift cards, right?
1: Yeah. The, the Well, Stripe is really just for the payment that most of the... Um, like the money is uh, stored in our bank account. And so we have to know at any point how much money is theoretically like how much money is in practice in our bank account and how much money is theoretically in our app, Uh, because as soon as an app has got, you know, 50 bucks on it, uh, uh, sorry, as soon as a card has uh, 50 bucks on it, uh, this is real money that can be used at some point. So we have to make sure that um, the bank account and the uh, and the app are in sync. A lot of the MVP was building the gift card system. How do you generate uh, single use um, gift card codes? Uh, how do you secure the fact that if you send out a gift card, if uh, you send it by mail and it's intercepted, how do you make sure that it cannot be used so It needs to be activated? How do you invent the, the activation system when you send out a hundred different um, gift cards uh, by post? Uh, you can't ask um, your business customer to enter every one of the hundred um, gift card numbers in an interface so that they can credit the cards. So you so we've got a batch um, we, we've got a little tool to batch handle, sorry activating many cards and, and adding money to 100, 500 a 1, thousand cards. So yeah the, the core um, Django app is basically just for gift card management. This is the complex part. Um, so to me as much as you can, anything else than the complex parts should be outside if you, if you can, if you can, so that the the core is as um, straight to the point as possible. And you spend time on the, the part that's complex and that brings actual value to your uh, business user.
0: Right. So it sounds like you were very, very productive in those couple of months. If you managed to get all of that in the initial version of the app, where it's mostly just the Django code, like connecting to bank accounts and all that validation process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it was the core. I mean, it's, uh, because I'd done it before for another uh, gift card system, not as extensively, not as big. Um, my, uh, my previous company is is, is for um, restaurant gift cards, and we'd only uh, added 10 restaurants, so the scale was much smaller. So I did have some experience, which allowed me to go a little faster on the topic. But uh, you know, if you focus on very few features, but doing them well, you can do a lot in a few months, and that's what I was focused on.
0: Right, so were there any Python or Django packages that really helped you pull all of that together in a couple of months? Um, Let me have a look at my pip file.
1: Um, Yes, so the uh, apps that I'm running in production on my Django are uh, Django REST framework, as I mentioned, um, AnyMail, which is a standard for sending out email, Django AnyMail. I use a little bit of Bootstrap, so I have Django Bootstrap 4, which allows you to quickly... um, Show forms in a bootstrap format, so that's nice. Um, I'm using CK Editor with the Django CK Editor because it lets you have a a mini CMS that I use for the pages on our website. Um, Obviously, Django Debug Toolbar because you got bugs and you need to debug them. I use Pillow for image management and to optimize the images on our site so that they load as fast as possible. Um, Markdown. yeah, I think I've covered most of it. And requests, obviously. These are very standard things. So not a lot of um, extravagant tools. I, I mostly use the very common tools of the trade.
0: Right. And then there's probably the Stripe library or some Django-specific one.
1: Yeah, Stripe, MailChimp. Um...
0: What about connecting to the bank, though? Or is there like some other way to do that? Like, you It's just not a specific library, but you just use requests or something?
1: Right. So the way it works with the bank is... Um, I have a separate dashboard, which shows how much um, I have a dashboard in my app that shows how much money is in theory, uh, in the app. And so we can compare that to the bank, but there's no direct connection, uh, between the bank's API and the, um, and, and the Django site. It's just, we can make sure that the, the amount of money is the same and that we've got a balance between the two sides.
0: Okay. So it's like kind of on you to keep tabs on that, to make sure there's always enough in the bank.
1: Yes, and we have a notification every month if uh, the, differences, the difference becomes too important.
0: Okay. Has it ever got to the point where that notification was like, hey, by the way, running kind of low here?
1: Well, it, it's the other way around, right? The Our main... Um, because we're a gift card company, uh, we run with a lot of cash uh, because people purchase gift cards and they don't use them right away. We send out money to our shops um, every month, uh, but usually gift cards are purchased and then they're used maybe two, three months later on average. Um, And part of them are not used at all. So um, we actually have a lot of cash in the bank, but it's in a bank account that we're not allowed to use per uh, French law. We're allowed to use a small part of it, which is our commission, but the rest of the money we're not allowed to touch. So my job is to make sure that the amount of money that's in that bank account is um, tracked and accounted for so that we know exactly when Uh, you know gift cards expire uh, how much money we can take out of that account Um, and we have to be sure at any point that if all of our users went to um, their shops and tried to use their card that there would be enough money in the bank to pay out all the shops
0: ah so you actually run a legit bank then unlike most banks in well maybe in the US at least I don't think you can just run out and get all of your money like if everyone did that at once that bank would be have some issues (laughs)
1: Well, there, uh, there have been documented cases of uh, gift card businesses that um, went into um, uh, bankruptcy. And so people had given out, you know, uh, gift cards and weren't able to use them. And that's a really bad experience. And since we're an ethical company and we can't make profit anyway, uh, we don't really have much of an incentive to, um, you know, take more money out than what we need.
0: Right. So maybe now we can switch gears a bit and just go back to like what your tech stack is. So you mentioned you're using SQLite and, you know, using Django and Python. Uh, Do you use anything like Celery and Redis as well, or Docker, at least in development, anything like that?
1: So because I use Python Anywhere, which is um, basically an an interface to uh, Amazon Web Services, so they provide a a task system that's uh, built into Python Anywhere. So I don't have that many tasks running. I have a few for like database backups and things like that. But these tasks are all organized in Python anywhere. So I don't use anything like uh, um, Celery or Redis. And no, uh, there's no Docker. I use pipenv for my environment, but uh, that's about it.
0: Okay. So what was your thought process for using SQLite over something like uh, Postgres or another SQL database maybe? Because you mentioned that people kind of call you crazy for using that. So here's your chance to defend yourself. (laughs)
1: Right. Um, Well, I think a good precept in technology in general is um, if it works, don't fix it. And um, we don't have a lot of, I mean, I'm being tongue in cheek a little bit because um, we don't have a lot of database rights. So I'm not advocating that you use SQLite in production. It's just that um, because we basically only have database rights when people purchase Gift cards, uh, anything else can be, you know, asynchronous and can be managed. It's okay if it's a little slow. Um, we don't have like hundreds of gift cards being purchased every second, so these events are basically they don't happen frequently enough uh, for our SQLite database to be in trouble. So you know, there's a timeout on it. So if there were m- multiple concurrent requests, then it would handle it very, very easily, and we've low tested it. And even if there's, you know, many people purchasing cars at once, it can handle it. So it's it's mostly just a case of this is how I built it originally, and uh, basically I didn't feel like going into Postgres for, for it. And Postgres is a little bit extra money, and in our case, it just doesn't feel like it's a requirement. And so far we haven't had any issue. Um, but you know, maybe one day when we have higher volumes, we'll want to move to Postgres.
0: Very cool. Yeah, because I would think like your type of app that you're creating is such a, I wouldn't, you know, it's not mission critical in the sense that people are dying. But once you start dealing with money like this, like that's a pretty important app. So it's it's cool to see that even during the holidays where, you know, someone might order 500 gift cards for a company or whatever, you know, that SQLite database is just happily writing those records out without blowing up.
1: Yeah, because if you're inserting 500 um, items, it's going to take, you know, maybe a few milliseconds. But your SQLite database can wait uh, a little bit and we're not going to have people buying 500 cards every second. So it's just because our system is very low in database rights and you know most of the um, views that we get on our site are on, a, on cached pages. Uh, so there's very little database requests either. It just, um, you know, it works. So there's not really much of a reason to change
0: it. Right, so when it comes to those bulk inserts of like a couple hundred at a time, do you just generate all of those and then validate them and then insert them as one database query, or maybe in batches, or you just go like one query at a time?
1: Uh, it's it's all. I use the Django um, default system, and so it's an atomic request. So if it fails, it can uh, roll back everything. But um, it's just a database insert for every one of them. But you know, even five hundred is is fairly fast. It, it's only going to take a few minutes. Maybe, you know, half a second or so.
0: Right. Yeah, that's not too bad. Kind of interesting that uh, Python Anywhere supports that, like that SQLite database. So I've never used that service before. Maybe do you want to just give like a TLDR on what it what it is and like how it relates to maybe Heroku or possibly running your own server?
1: Sure. Um, so what I knew before getting into Python Anywhere was um, like, you know, PHP host, um, uh, websites that I built before were with, you know, pure HTML or a little bit of PHP. And so Python Anywhere, what they do is they abstract a lot of basically what you need to do when you need to manage a server. So uh, I've never used Heroku, so I'm not sure I can compare it very well. But I do think that one big difference is that you have um, a file system that is um, that's uh, persistent. So. I don't think you can use SQLite on Heroku because your file system is not persistent, and so you have to put your, um, your static files and your media files elsewhere, if I understand correctly. In Python Anywhere, they have um, a few tools so that you can have your static files and media files right on your server, and so your, you know, your SQLite file can be there as well. Uh, one thing that I find handy with SQLite is that it's ridiculously easy to back up. You can just download the database and, and save it somewhere. It's also very easy to bring that database into your development environment if you want to test things out um, before you push something to production. So just the general handiness of it is, is quite nice. So Python Anywhere is based in the UK, and I think they're a small team. And they're really there to, uh, when you're starting out with Django or when you're only building things in Django, um, basically everything is optimized for that. So it's just, you don't have too much to think about and you can just run your app uh, as fast as possible. And, you know, anybody that takes load off m- my mind is a friend to me, so that's uh, what they have been do. And their support is super helpful as well.
0: So in your case, are you running just one, like, I don't know what terminology they would have, but like one server or one Heroku Dino equivalent, like one instance of something?
1: Yeah, they have web workers, so um, I think we're running uh, four web workers, so that can handle, I mean, I think we're using like 5% of our capacity on uh, Python Anywhere at any given day, maybe up to 10% on a big day uh, of our CPU capacity or our storage space. Um, so as I mentioned, our, our the nature of our business makes it very low in terms of uh, requests in terms of the the volumes of data that we have to manage. so um we're paying maybe fifteen bucks a month and or way above the limit of uh, we're way below the limit uh, in terms of requirements.
0: Very cool. Now those workers are they responsible for handling web traffic as well? Like I'm trying to visualize having a couple of those, but then also having like a SQLite database on disk. like does it get replicated across all of those? Like how does that work? Can I say I have no idea? <laughs>
1: okay. No, seriously, uh, basically anything um, uh, like I'm, I'm not skilled in DevOps at all. As I mentioned, I'm not a trained um, computer science graduate. And um, so I started using Python Anywhere maybe six or seven years ago to run the first apps that I built. And so I do create a new environment, uh, a new account on Python Anywhere, basically, as soon as I have a new client. Um, but it, I don't really think about... Um, how it works because it works. So that's that's my main concern. Um, and even on the low tiers and the fairly cheap tiers, um, uh, it works very well. Um, the, I know that you you asked earlier about SQLite. I know that um, uh, my SQL is by default um, in Python anywhere and it's free. And if you want a Postgres uh, database, it's a few euros extra per month.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of curious how it works now. But that's not a question for this podcast. Maybe. I'll just ask the guy who runs it. Um, But going back to what you said before about, yeah, you can just write things to a file system and it persists. How do you deal with static files? Do you just do that and then serve them with uh, G Unicorn? Or do you have like Nginx sitting in front of that?
1: Um, Well, that's the thing. I also don't know this because it's also handled by by Python Anywhere. I think it's um, Unicorn. The, state, the static files, basically in Python Anywhere, it allows you to say which folder your static files are, and it serves them a little differently. I don't know exactly how, but uh, it's very fast. Um, what I also do is I use um, um, you know cache busting. So um, I have a, I, let me remember what it's called. Um, or is it by default in Django? I don't remember. Um, you know, basically every static file Ha- is named, um, there's a hash that's made on the static file. So that as soon as you change it, um, it blows up the cache and so it can be reloaded instantly so that you can set caches that last uh, you know, a year or many years. And I have a Cloudflare on top of that so that it, uh, it, it caches most of the static files. So most of them are not served directly by my Python app, they're served by
0: Cloudflare. Right. So going back to what you said before about Cloudflare, did you just set that up because, like, did you read a tutorial somewhere about wanting to set that up, or did you have prior experience for using that one? And, like, what do you actually do with that? Do you have all of your DNS records there? They do SSL for you, and then also serving your static files and caching them?
1: Uh, yeah, so the the main reason I'm using it is to uh, serve my static files. And uh, so my DNS is uh, replicated in Cloudflare. Uh, that's the main reason, Um uh, we do have a lot of requests on our static files because there's a bit of traffic. I mean, it's not a huge website, but there's quite a bit of traffic on the, the, the marketing site and the, the blog pages. And so um, most of the, at least the images and things like that are served by Cloudflare. And uh, so there's caching on the Django site as well. Um, but I think Cloudflare uh, uh, serves the HTML pages directly without interacting necessarily with uh, Django most of the time.
0: Oh, nice. Was that something you had to manually configure to tell it to do stuff other than just static files? I don't think so. I think
1: it does it out of the box. You can, you can tell it what kind of pages are variable so that it avoids doing this. But I have to be honest, I don't know exactly how it works. Again, <laughs> it works, so I'm not uh, – I, I, basically, the speed of development is fairly fast on this app, and so I spend very little time going back to things – um, because as soon as I've finished something, my client wants new things built. And so, uh, eventually, um, I'm going to have to look at everything back again, but, uh, as, as long as everything works, I'm, I'm, fairly happy, which is maybe a little bit of a dangerous place to be. So eventually I'll ask somebody to come and help me audit my site and, and tell me what they think of everything that I've
0: built. Right. Yeah. It doesn't seem too dangerous yet, yeah, but it's like, once like, you know, half a dozen or 10 of those things start to pile up then it's like suddenly you know it gets a little bit hard to reason about
1: that's true i think it's um it's something you you kind of have to deal with as a web developer that there's so much to know um you you cannot understand your entire application fully I, i don't think that's possible right there's always layers of things that you rely on that you won't understand and i think you have to accept at some point that some things that you're going to be using you're not going to understand and um it, it can be a little frustrating sometimes and it can be worrying when you know that you're relying on things that you don't understand fully but i think it's just something we kind of have to accept that we have to stand on the shoulders of um of other people's work and other people's work we can usually depend on as long as we're careful and we use best practices
0: oh yeah yeah that's good advice for sure i mean there's rabbit holes that have no end like even just like learning about dns end to end like how does it work like how does, you know, you type in a web address and like magically it just works. Like there's a thousand things to look up on that one. Exactly,
1: that's a, that's a very good point. I've been using DNS for 10 years and I still don't know how it works.
0: Yeah, so going back to your app here, do you maybe want to walk us through what the deploy process looks like? Like let's say you're developing a new feature, you're ready to commit it, you push it up. Like how does that get up and running in production?
1: Right, so I, I've um, replicated the, the site. Um, we have a test version. Um, and a live version. So when we're pushing big new features, I push them first to the test version so that our business users can, can test them out. We do have quite a few automated tests um, because I'm I'm solo managing the entire code base. I'm careful about writing uh, tests at least for all of the critical um, uh, features uh, just to make sure that I, I don't break something when you know on the Sunday I need to change something really fast because my uh, my client asks me to. I just want to make sure that I'm not um, destroying the entire website by doing that. So automated tests, and then a test environment that we sometimes used for, you know, bigger features that need to be tested out by um, our business users. Um, and if that works, then we push to the production environment.
0: Okay. Now, speaking of like details and other things, maybe we can go a little bit more into detail on that one. Like, do you like literally just Get push code to a branch and like a ci service runs those tests like what what's happening in between
1: um no i usually just run the tests um i, I run the test before i do any uh, uh git push so that's <laughs> I, I could automate it but uh, so far it's been uh, efficient enough so i just make sure that the tests run um, um in my local environment and if they're fine then i push to the correct um git branch and if the the master branch has changed then the, the website is automatically updated. I have a little webhook um, trigger from GitLab that calls my web server and the web server knows that it needs to restart. It needs to collect static again in case the sta- static files have changed. It needs to um, migrate if migrations are in order and things like that and uh, to refresh, to uh, clear out the cache and, and and to restart itself.
0: Nice, so when it comes to those database migrations, you just run them on every deploy even if they don't need it, and you kind of just depend on Django to be idempotent in that regard?
1: Um, yeah, the, 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 um, I don't know how to, to what extent you're familiar with Django, but you know you, you, you call make migrations and then it creates the migration files. And when you run migrate, it, uh, it will only run if um, there are migration files. So if there's nothing, it just doesn't do anything. So yeah, I run migrate on every uh, commit um, to the master branch and um, it won't do anything if there's nothing to migrate.
0: Okay. Now, earlier you mentioned that you do have, you know, a couple of workers on Python Anywhere. When you deploy a new version of your code base, is there like a, like a hitch, like a couple seconds where the whole site goes down or does it kind of just know what to do behind the scenes to load balance that?
1: There is, um you know, half a second where the entire website goes down. It I, I think um in Python Anywhere, I read this recently, um. They uh, they make sure that all of the current tasks are completed, and then they shut down the the server and they start it up again.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's very nice to be able to deploy your app and only get like that amount of downtime. Like, there's a big difference, I guess, between half a second and like ten seconds.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I test it out regularly, <laughs> and uh, the the it being half a second is very nice.
0: Yeah, for sure. So how does Python Anywhere deal with secrets, like those Stripe API keys or transactional email keys, things like that?
1: Right there. Um, well, you can set up your, I, I still I still do it the the old way. I, th- I think there are newer ways to do this, but um, basically local settings, I have a file of local settings where there's not that many things, but there are most of my secrets in there. So they're hosted on Python Anywhere. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's about it. So, you know, the secret key uh, that's used for uh, crypto as well as uh, most of my, um, API keys for things like mail, mail for Airtable, for Stripe and things like that.
0: Yeah. It sounds similar to, I mean that local file, I guess it's kind of like an ENV file that you just load locally.
1: Um, yeah, pretty much.
0: Okay. So also when it comes to Python anywhere, do they deal with all of your SSL certs as well? like in between Cloudflare and Python Anywhere?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> See, um, unfortunately, all of these DevOps, I'm, I'm not really, uh, I don't really look into much. Um, I'm, I'm focused more on the feature development, but um, I know that out of the box, um, when when I don't use Cloudflare, uh, Python Anywhere um, lets you activate uh, HTTPS and um, and then you can, um, you can access yeah, you're saying SSL, not SSH. Um,
0: yeah, SSL, like HTTPS.
1: Yes, you can just activate it and it will uh, create a Let's Encrypt, um, a, what do you call that, certificate for you. Uh, but I think the one that I'm using right now is the Cloudflare one. I think the, the Cloudflare one takes precedence mm-hmm. over the, uh, the Python Anywhere one. But on both sites, it's, it's really easy to do. I remember as well when they um, deployed this because, you know, uh, in the beginning, like deploying your own certificate was a bit of an adventure. <laughs> and so it, now basically all of the services that I've tried to use recently, whether it be Netlify or you know, Python Anywhere or Cloudflare, they handle this for you in a couple of seconds. It's a, it's a very nice feature.
0: Yeah, big time. Yeah, I remember deploying a couple of sites like years ago before Let's Encrypt was around and it was just, yeah, very big hassle.
1: And it's the sort of thing that you do only once when you set up your website, so you forget every time you have to do it again.
0: Yeah, that really is the truth, right? Back then it was like you would do it once a year, but yeah, if you're not doing it all the time, super easy to forget, especially if it's like some crazy, uh, you know, commands that you need to run on the command line to generate the keys, like you're always Googling it and it's like, I hope it works this time. So going back to Python Anywhere, do they handle things like backing up your database and also backing up your user-generated files, like those blog post images? Uh, no, they
1: don't. Uh, I think I mean I'm. I think I talked to them about this once, and I think they do have uh, some level of redundancy. But you know, I don't count on that, so I um, I make sure that the entire database and the contents of the site are backed up every hour. Um, it's basically just a script that um, copies all of that into another. Um, drive that stores all of these data, which is one of the nice things about SQLite is that it's just a file. So it's it's very easy to back up uh, anywhere. And there's not a, a big volume of data. So I just back up everything every hour. I keep the hourly logs for a month. And then after a month, I only keep the um, the weekly logs.
0: Okay. So when you take that database and you move it to like a different drive, does Python Anywhere give you... Some type of like ext- external storage drive that you can connect to your app somehow. Like, where does it ultimately get saved to? No,
1: um, they don't. So I have my own um, other drive that I save things to, um, and um, they're occasionally saved to Google Drive as well, um, just because we want to keep a copy um, that uh, business users can access if they want to uh, to see the history of uh, of all the data that's on the site. But they don't provide anything i mean i don't think they do so i just uh it's just my scripts that are making all of the copying
0: ah so wait that's a local script then like you're literally saving it to a local drive and then maybe putting it on google drive after
1: it's uh so the drive i'm saving it to is another server that i have access to which is it's not a local drive it's um uh, it's a hosted service uh, that i use uh, a french host uh, so i have like an available A disk, um, an available server with disk space there. So everything is saved uh, there. It's actually the same host that I have my domain name on. Um, And so all of the databases are, uh, I mean, all the hourly backups of the database are stored there. And if I remember correctly, the, the weekly backups are also backed up to Google Drive, just in just in case.
0: Okay, very cool. Yeah. So you have like a VPS somewhere that you can just SSH into and do stuff, I guess, right?
1: Uh, it's not a VPS. It's a shared hosting, old school. Okay, <laughs> it's something I've had for a long
0: time. It's just uh,
1: an extra security.
0: Yeah, I remember those days of PHP. I had a Bluehost account for many, many years. Yeah, those were the days. Yeah. So going back to uh, Python anywhere, do they also give you like alerts and things? Like, if your site happens to go down for whatever reasons, will you get notified by them? No, I don't think they do. Uh, I use uh,
1: external services like uh, I have Uptime Robot that. Uh, tells me if my site goes down. But um, otherwise, apart from like the entire website going down, I I do have alerts set up uh, with the Django. Uh, Django has a default um, way of um, yelling at you every time there's an error on your website. So I receive an email and a Discord notification as soon as a user encounters an error. Um, And so based on the level of the error, I get yelled at more or less loudly.
0: Nice. So you get that whole stack trace sent to you?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, so I can debug everything. That's really easy to set up in Django. Very, very handy. Um, and so I can, I can make sure that I'm always uh, fast to react.
0: Right. Do you get frequent errors or just once in a while? Uh, no, not frequently. If,
1: when they happen, they tend to happen after I've pushed something, and it, it might be on. Uh, it's usually going to be something like a, a template uh, that's not very often used. Uh, so it's not in my tests. Um, and so when uh, in this sp- specific scenario, this template won't work because um, you know th- I, there's no type safety. So sometimes it will try to open an integer, and it's actually not an integer. It's none. And so that might make a template error, but those are fairly rare. Um, and usually after I've uh, made a little change, um, and so never on anything critical.
0: Right. Yeah, because the critical stuff, you have that pretty well tested, right?
1: Yes. Um, actually, one of the weaknesses that I had recently was um, because in my critical um, gift card selling system, I had uh, Stripe and Airtable. Um, sometimes these services would, uh, especially uh, Airtable occasionally doesn't respond, right? and. And sometimes that failed a little badly, a little catastrophically. So uh, one of the things that I did recently uh, was rebuild um, the the payment system so that I would need um, too many external interactions. And um, I have um, try and accept blocks so that when that does happen, things don't fail catastrophically. But yeah, I think that was the main, that was the source of errors recently, but uh, that's been dealt with.
0: Nice. Now, speaking of payment systems, we didn't get a chance to go over this one yet. You know, since you're from France, I don't know if your business is located there as well. Are you dealing with the new Stripe APIs that are SCA compliant?
1: Absolutely. Um, so luckily enough, uh, they were already available when I started building the website. So I I, um, I built the entire app with the, the new SCA compliant uh, Stripe. So I know that based depending on the country, people are used to different um, payment methods. But in France, um, the credit card is very ubiquitous. Um, uh, so, you, you know, we have the credit cards with uh, we actually we call them credit cards, but they're not their debit cards. Actual credit cards are uh, very, very rare in France. And uh, the, the the debit cards that we have are the ones with the, um, the little chip inside, you know, the, the pin um everybody uses this um, paypal uh, is is quite rare maybe it has five to ten percent usage rates but uh, uh, that's quite practical because it means we don't have to support many different um, payment systems and most users are happy uh, which i can't say for other countries like i, I know that in germany they use paypal extensively uh, in belgium they use uh, dozens of different payment systems so Stripe does most of the work for us in terms of payment management um and um the SCA is is quite handy we we've got we've had a few like uh fraud cases uh but nothing major so so far so good
0: Yeah also very cool to hear that you know such a small percentage of folks use PayPal over there so you were kind of off the hook of having to implement another payment gateway API
1: Yes um for now at least yeah, I've set it up on the on other sites, and it's, it's really uh, handy to only have to manage a single payment gateway.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, Stripe's API is very good. You can implement that. And like maybe PayPal's API on its own, eh, a little bit harder and like less documentation to set up. But suddenly it's like when your app needs to use both of them, it's like, yeah, certain abstractions need to be created. Like it's much harder to do two than one, even if both of them are like kind of okay to do on their own.
1: It's hard to do clean code that you can count on when you, you're using these two services at once that don't work the same way, that don't abstract the same things. Uh, I, I've done it before and I didn't enjoy it.
0: Yeah, same here. Not uh, my funnest programming gig, but it's kind of nice just to have it done out of the way and then you can kind of just use it on other projects as needed.
1: Absolutely. You, you, you can copy paste a lot of it. The last time I implemented uh, PayPal was um, maybe three or four years ago. So um, I hope they've made it easier um because you know stripe is just such a breeze and as a you know as an ethical company we looked into alternatives um there are a few uh, payment gateways that are uh, you know either more local uh, or even uh, some of them are trying to focus on being ethical and being grain uh, and we'd really love to switch to one of these but um you know the amount of time that we'd need to uh that we would need to do this compared to the the speed at which um, uh, stripe was implemented is just it, it just speaks for itself right the it's it's very fast and very efficient and then you can do so much with it yeah you can r- really rely on it so I appreciate that very much as a as a developer that I don't have to worry too much about that part
0: right yeah if you want to go pure eco-friendly you can always go like ancient days of just bartering like you can get an actual yak and then you can shave it physically instead of just mentally
1: absolutely I agree we should do that No, there's a French company called uh, Paygrain, and they do basically the same thing as Stripe. But, uh, you know, they won't do it for customers that are too small. So I think now we're big enough that uh, it'd be worthwhile. Uh, But the transactions in France are cheaper, I think, as well. And on Stripe, the the credit card, um, uh, the the cost, the commission are a little uh, lower in Europe than they are in the US. So it's really not very painful, like the amount of money that you give them out every month.
0: So we're kind of wrapping up over here. Like, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app?
1: I think um, one of the things that I made, um, it's, it's not technical, right? It's more of a of, of how you approach um, starting um, building the application that's going to be the, the core product of a company. Um, and I think it was a challenge for us to release fast, uh, but we learned so much uh, by having a product that that was out as early as possible. Because one thing that really shocked me, even though I knew this in theory, um, is how much we changed in our uh, priorities as soon as we had something released and as soon as we had customer feedback. Um, That's one thing I learned. Another thing I learned is that however much I build new features, there's always new features that are going to be required. And so as a... um, a freelance developer, um, I think it's really important that you think about what's going to be happening in the next two years, in the next three years, uh, what's going to happen when you leave, what happens if you you know, get run over by a bus. These are things that we don't really like to think about, but as a solo developer, I have to constantly think about what happens if something happens to me, what happens if uh, I'm no longer able to take care of my code. And so... Um, so far, nothing's happened, and I'm really happy. But uh, you know, uh, you have to think about how you make sure that your entire complex system is easy to hand out, uh, to hand off to somebody else, even if you're not there.
0: Right? Yeah. No, that is very, very sound advice. And yeah, when it comes to automating that sort of thing, it, that's very much easier said than done.
1: Yeah. And you, um, when you start building something, you don't necessarily realize the breadth of what it's going to be a year later, and all the little complexities, all the things that you write uh, fast because you need these extra features. And at the end of the day, after a year of, of, uh, of coding things, you end up with a fairly big thing that you have to refactor regularly if you don't want it to go uh, to go crazy and to make you crazy.
0: Right. At least on the bright side, though, to get to that point where you start automating all that stuff, it kind of forces you to really understand like the problems that you have.
1: Definitely. And every time you look, you look a little deeper and you learn and and you get better. So, you know, that's that's why we do this, I think, to to get better at our trade.
0: Yep. So Anthony, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you on. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that?
1: Um, I don't have a public GitHub profile um, because uh, most of my clients I find uh, networking. But you can look at Etikado, and that's the name of the company. And so that's E-T-H-I-K-D-O dot C-O.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'll make make sure to drop a link to that in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, or leave a review if you like the show.